1: as I dive into conversations with amazing guests about what they are not sorry for in creative and loving ways. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to another episode of Unapologetically Bold, I'm Not Sorry For. And I am so blessed today to have a friend with me that I I now call a friend, Perry. Hey, how are
0: you doing, Emily? Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: It's such a blessing to have you. And if you cannot tell people, He's got an accent. So he is across from across the pond. And so you are, if you want to tell people actually just a little bit about yourself and
0: you. Exactly, I will. So, uh, I was born in a fairly uh, small town in uh, uh, England called Northampton, uh, very famous for uh, making shoes. Uh, And so, uh, my mother and father met when they worked in a shoe factory. And uh, I support the local soccer team, uh, Northampton town, who are called the Cobblers. So, there's a real shoe connection.
1: Uh,
0: I joined the civil service when I uh, left school and worked for the government in the legal system. And got involved in technology projects and learning and then found my way into the not-for-profit area for a while. And I've been leading an independent business since 2012 that has a motto and a kind of mission, better business for a better world. And so that's the kind of thing I'm into.
1: And I love it. And I can't wait for people to get to hear you speak about that as well, because I think that really plays into what you're not sorry for. So, I just love to go ahead and hop on into it. So, you don't mind tell the world what you are not apologizing for anymore.
0: I'm not sorry for promoting self management in work.
1: I love that. So, to dive more into that, and I think also to put a backstory on it, you are really in the people side of the business. Yeah, you got it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We nerd out a lot about self. Self management, self discovery, self efficacy—like we can nerd out a lot of st- uh, on a lot of stuff. So let's just start in about self management. Tell us a little mm. bit. How did you get to this?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess when a lot of us enter the workplace, we are used to having a kind of hierarchical um, setup, right? So we we are allocated to a team leader, we are guided by a manager, we are given performance agreements, and we have, um, I guess, conversations called appraisals, and they assess your performance and so on. And, and you know, we kind of don't know any different. We think this is the way that things go. And then after a while, you come across some managers and team leaders, and you kind of think what value do they add to what I'm doing? They kind of just supervise me and they kind of tell me off if there's something not quite right. And then you kind of think, but what value do they add? And so you don't question it. And then I had one of those kind of aha moments when um, a London Business School professor, but actually is from uh, your side of the pond, Gary Hamill, was at a conference talking about the future of management. And he introduced the concept to me that just made me go, wow. He said, management is a 20th century technology that has outgrown its usefulness in the 21st century world of work. This was 2007 and I was like, this is this is something that's just encapsulated all that I've been thinking about interference about friction about disappointment about over management and all this kind of lacking confidence thing that I felt sometimes in the workplace so I started to dig deeper and I found this Brazilian entrepreneur who took over his father's engineering business called Ricardo Semler and he decided to remove management from his entire enterprise and allow teams to self-organize and have budgets and decisions making and this company thrived and I read the book Maverick and I was like wow this is it like the world does not need as many managers as we seem to have created I was careful though because I didn't want to kind of demonize the whole concept of management because I've had some terrific managers who've looked after me who have nourished me who have helped me learn but I'm thinking but for each one of those I probably had two maybe three who just made things difficult for me who got in the way And so this self-management style of liberated, self-directed, autonomous ways of working seem to be attached to organizations where people flourished and had a strong sense of fulfillment in their work. And that's why I'm not sorry for it, Emily, because we want people to flourish in their work. We want people to be satisfied and feel value and worth in what they do. And unfortunately, sometimes managers just stop that from happening.
1: I love that. And I think the part that really gets me is you say self-management. I call it self-determination, but it's still a part of the same for sure. whole, uh, same area because for me, I use Desi and Ryan's work a lot and it's ba- it's the self-determination theory and it is competency, autonomy, and relatedness. So giving them the knowledge, <laughs> giving them autonomy, giving them the freedom of choice and making it relatable for them. And also, everybody has different levels. So, as Americans, I've found we really like autonomy because mm-hmm. we want to have our choices. That's what our whole governmental basis is off of. So, where it may not be as applicable to another region, but still, we all have that ability to determine what's best for ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's important in this is that self management piece. Yeah. So, People that are asking what is self-management, how would you describe it?
0: Yeah. So um, it it is as simple, I guess, as the removal of an unnecessary layer of supervision. Okay, so I think what we have to accept is that there are circumstances sometimes when people are quite new to a role. They perhaps don't have the confidence and the competence that a more senior figure who can help them with knowledge, who can build their confidence, who can create connections and, and bring them into a state of comfort with the work they're doing is very helpful uh, and so i would more, i would call that more coaching right i think we've seen the rise of coaching in management for a good reason because I think we've wanted to be guided rather than supervised. Mm. And so that's almost like a first step towards it. If you, can, if you can create managers who guide and inspire more than they kind of control and, and, and almost kind of uh, oppress, then I think we're into a good place. So that's almost like the first rung of the ladder on self-management. The next layer really is where managers are just like, you do not need me, and I'll mm-hmm. go do some specialist somewhere else because you have – quality in what you do you have the ability to make decisions you have trust in your colleagues and the people who you're there to work and serve Um, and so I'm just gonna let you do it and and you know when things get tough and you might need a bit of help then then call in a more experienced colleague or perhaps me but largely speaking I believe you have exactly what you need to get this Mm -hmm. work done so I think I've seen it develop Quite a lot in um, areas where people have a high degree of i would say kind of professional discipline right so mm-hmm. i think we've seen it um creep into the military stanley McChrystal's famous book team of teams was talking about autonomous units small tightly knit groups who did not need oppressive strategic general kind of direction um, and we've seen it in areas like the military and uh, uh, medical profession oh. uh, where again people are just like I'm in this. I know what I'm doing. I do not need a bureaucrat to tell me to fill in a form in order to make a decision on what's good for patient welfare. But I think we've seen it explode in technology. And I think that's where I guess most people might associate self-management is in the stories of Spotify and some of the Google 20% time where people will say, You have what you need and you should get on with being creative, inventive and determined on your own um, kind of direction, not some supervisory um, performance indicator, statistically led challenge. You have the ability to solve your problems and to create great things in your work. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think it's that self-determination that you talk about that I think has seen technology companies thrive through innovation because management hasn't had to approve things. It's allowing people to create things, test them, learn, manage risk and develop. So I see it as an incredibly mature, mature set of circumstances where trust is hugely important and you probably know the work of um, Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School and Michael Lee from INSEAD. And they talk a lot about the sort of disassembly of hierarchy and the need to see more people who have agency and choice, as you as you say. So I think it's those. It's the factors of I can choose how I do things, knowing that I'm confident enough to make those decisions and I don't get given prescriptive
1: uh, scripts
0: to run through. You know, I, I've got the latitude to innovate. I can create connections, um, and, and I can drive. You know, my part of the business forward on my own steam, working as part of a team and collaborating on a very inclusive and joined up manner.
1: And I think that's so important to note too. In the work that we do with their frustration eliminations, nine times out of ten, it's something bureaucratic that really like. And the thing is, is that stress, there's actually good sides of stress, but most of the stress comes that we see is is from a negative response. And in that aspect, it is because it is that control and command and a micromanaging aspect. But I do think that it has been generationally taught until now.
0: Yeah, I agree with that.
1: And I think the one thing that has kind of twisted and changed it out is the technology aspect of it because I was talking to a mental skills coach the other day and for a baseball team or professional baseball team, we were were just nerding out about different things, but one was about the quickness that they have to, to adapt and change. And that's also what I see in like the manufacturing field, because everything is needed yesterday in the work that we do or, but the difference is in our healthcare field, If we, it's kind of a slower, more adoption aspect of it, because this is my theory, if something goes wrong, somebody may die. So it's like how people can add risk adverse situations with that ability to be able to be creative and innovative and not over bureaucrat something so that people can have that choice, which is, it's not, it's easier said than done, but there are ways that we can do it. So. I like to dive into that just to give mm. more of a why mm. we, it, it is possible because people are like, it's not possible. It can't be done, but yeah. it's coming. Like, yeah. I don't think it's something that people can avoid because if you, special right now, if you're not adapting, you're dying
0: yeah completely you're right there are a number of different factors behind the why and you've hit on a couple of really key ones the first one is speed to respond and so the more bureaucratic and layered you are as an organization with you know, supervisor and manager and head of division and VP, and then the more gates you have to go to to make a decision, right? And so there is something about the world does not recognize that the world will have pressure on you to make a decision But by the time you've gone through that chain, and it's been adapted, you know, adjusted, and then put back down, the issue has changed anyway so i think you're absolutely right about the pace of the world and and some of that has the technology connecting it that is driven uh, a lot of this so in days when we could fill in a letter put it in an envelope Post it through the mail. It gets, you know, that was totally different pace of life. Now, the instant somebody sends a message through a social network or email, we expect an instant response to that, even if that is a challenging, unorthodox thing that's being asked of you, right? So so we have been in a position where we have a tension between the risk and the hierarchical power and the need to serve a customer that, to keep them and, and, and make them, you know, love us as a company and so on. So... I think we've seen that pressure and that driver create the sense that people think I'm going to do something mischievous here, and I'm going to make a decision even though I know I could get into trouble for it, right? And 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 knowing that the outcome is the right outcome, and so they've kind of kept quiet and gone. I just hope I don't get found out, right? <laughs> I, see, I see. And and often the customer is delighted and and you know may write a letter of congratulations, and the boss gets the letter and goes. You did this without telling me? It's like, yeah, it was the right outcome. It's like Yeah, but you should tell me. It's like, but if I told you, we wouldn't get there. And it's this ridiculous process versus outcome that I think the modern world, in the way that you've described it, has said, we cannot keep doing this it is unfathomable in 21st century pacey creative businesses so where self-management has taken hold is in a lot of areas where there is creativity pressure demand and so on and i guess it's also taken shape because of the nature of us becoming more aware of, um, I guess the the psychology of decisions, and you know, I guess we've got people who used to be very happy to be told what to do, who are now unhappy and feel pressured that they're not exercising their full mental capacity, right? Mm. Um, and I think we know we're wasted, so I think we reject that. We're like, I don't feel the worth. If I'm constantly programmed by another human being and I want to, you know, explore and and be creative and challenge, uh, uh, you know, sort of orthodoxies. Uh, And I think that's where we get a lot of satisfaction because we feel like we're learning, we're stretching, we're adapting, we're growing. And I think that desire is pretty strong. And that came out of Dan Pink's work in 2008 Drive, right? Mastery, autonomy and purpose. Those three things really frame what self-management is about. I want to get good at it. I want to have my own agency over this, and I know it's connected to the greater good. So I think we, we, we desire that more. So I think it's a combination of realising the processes are sclerotic and dangerous and and unhelpful and our own desires to just be more sort of in control and and able um, to make choices. There was one myth uh, I think I've seen in the world of work for a long time. It's where where, where people said people don't leave bad organisations, they leave bad managers. And I kind of think, well, yeah, I can understand that. But I think people leave organisations because they can't influence the changes around them to make it something they would love, right? And that's not always the manager's fault. Sometimes the system and the bureaucracy and the process that you talk about. So the why, I think, is much more compelling now, as well as the information we're now hearing from successful companies who have done this. Um, and in fact, a lot of them are in the US. So there are lots of examples of companies that operate in a very freedom-centered approach, um, and they are a testament to how successful and sustainable this can be.
1: I agree. And two things come to my mind while you're speaking about this. One is I remember specifically telling my uh, director that I reported to that, trust me, do you not believe in me? And it was. And the thing is, is I am a well-being expert like that's what well-being, human performance, organization performance. That's what I know. And I know, I know, I know it, if that makes sense too. I think. But for him, he knew policies and procedures. And so I knew that my wheelhouse was not his wheelhouse. I knew our strengths and weaknesses. But one time I remember making a decision and I told him, I said, you're going to kill me. But I decided this and here's why. And you told me that you trusted me. So and I could just tell like the twisting and turning in his stomach. But he's like okay Emily okay and and, in the end it turned out great you know and one of them it was like I remember one time we ended up like saving millions of dollars and he's like yeah I did that I'm like say what I was like Uh you had a heart attack after I told you about this (laughs) I was like but there's things that can happen and if you let your people who know their strengths go with it but on the reverse If your people do not know their strengths yet and are still being built up, you may have to tell them what to do because I know I have, oh, I have some of my people on my team. I call them diamonds in the rough because they do not know how amazing they are yet. And my my goal is to continually build that confidence in them because nobody's done that before. But until then, they do need more management side. And I go more towards the coaching, you know, Aspect of it and not telling them what to do, but they want a directive. So think about that about the individual response for the person based on their confidence as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, you've hit on a really important factor, which, again, is the maturity and the awareness of the person themselves about who they are, what they're capable of. I mean, that's a terrific point, right? So I would say when I entered the workplace, I needed a lot of supervision. I needed somebody who could help me get things right. Exactly that. And I also needed people who could say, you know what I see in you is I see you able to do this. And I'm like, really? I don't see that in myself. It's like, yeah, let's give it a go. And then you prove it. And then you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can. And then you kind of think this person is a genius or something because they like pulled the thread in your mind that you didn't know existed. But you do need that almost like that sensei, right, that kind of figure who who can help you channel like the things that you have in you and the interests and the energy and the propensity towards certain things. So I totally agree with that. That's where the coach thing is so powerful. Um, So I do think there's a nurturing aspect to management, which I think you've absolutely hit on there. But unfortunately, in most of the modern world of work, that nurturing aspect is somewhat suppressed because managers have become less the guardians of their people and more the guardians of the process. And so they stick to it in the way you described. Right. And then you're as people, you kind of go, but you don't really care about me because you're just telling me the process is this. Yeah, I know I can deviate to get an outcome. I know i can innovate to create a saving mm-hmm. and that gets frustrating because they're not managers of people they're managers of process and 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 the whole spirit i was once told this by a very senior military um uh, guy from the uk who said leadership is a gift it is an honor to say i'm The person who has responsibility for you and I will set the direction and I will make sure we're safe and we're good and we enjoy the journey to that. He said, that's that's such a joy. That's such a gift. And yet most people spoil it by becoming bureaucrats. And Mm. it was like, yeah, I, I totally see it. But I love the fact in a self-managed environment what people have recognized in, in the studies of, uh, of things that i've done is they recognize that role is so important so there is a nursing organization in the netherlands that has uh, no managers but it has coaches and those coaches are like drawn on demand by people who say look i'm new to the team i need to know how this stuff works because i used to work in the old bureaucratic way i'm i'm more used to spreadsheets than patients and then this coach helps them develop their bedside manner their introduction to a new patient their work with the community and then they see them flourish and then the coach kind of backs away and says you're ready now (laughs) and there's something so nice in having somebody who can almost endorse you by just bringing out what's in you anyway rather than somebody who kind of fills your head with stuff and just packages it for you. That feels very robotic. This discovery of the things that you are, you know, leaning towards and can acquire a skills and have a real interest in, that's a real gift. And I think, unfortunately, managers have lost that because we've, been, we've given them too much work and we've made them the process guardians. And I think if we can restore some of the human factor in, in leadership, we will welcome people with a title manager because we know they're there for us.
1: And I think that's important to note about giving the humanity back to it because it makes me think of some people that I have worked with that are basically just bitter. <laughs> and they, and especially if you have a high performer step in Oof. and then they're quote unquote then referred to as the rebel because oh, yeah. they're going out of the process. Yeah. But if they analyze, and the thing is, is I'm a process, I have a background in. I was do not have the degree in engineering, but I have a background in engineering and in design and Mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. Been doing it since I'm 14. I was 14. So, but all that to say is that I love processes. I love that's the reason why I love humanity because I love how the physiological processes work, but they're simple. And the thing is, is I've yet to not find a major savings with people whenever you address the the process but bring the people to it
0: oh, totally right again you've made me think about something that's been um, mulling in my mind uh, quite recently because a lot of people who are very into the self management world so they are you know almost completely detached from any form of bureaucracy or hierarchy who will say right it is all about the mindset and the spirit and you know it's not the system and I'm like okay but I think it is the system because we are always in a system and that's what you're describing there so I'm like you I love a pro-human process that's what I like because I do see situations where people dismantle management structures and processes and say okay everybody we're just going to go for it in a liberated sense and and we kind of look around and think okay (laughs) Where do i start what do i do and there's a discomforting element to that because sometimes those processes are really good for channeling our effort attention and energy and efficiency and if we just get rid of them we could be duplication and losing time and all that kind of thing so i'm like you i love a process but a pro human process so in self-management that works really well what i see is lots of collective agreement on what is a good process for decisions or expedience or priority and and actually, people respect that process because it's not imposed. It feels like you volunteer into it. It's almost like an ethical thing rather than just an efficient thing, but you know it's efficient too, right? So I'm totally with you on that. And 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 I see it in people of faith too, where there are processes that they adopt and they're really comforting and they're helpful Uh, nobody forces that process on somebody they 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 adopt it because it's right Uh, and i see that's the big difference self-management helps you make the choices on the things that are right rather than just the things that are there I, i once worked in an organization where there was a process and i kind of wanted to change it so i said to my boss at the time i said can i change this process and she went yeah but it's not our process i'm like oh okay whose is it she said it's the team in tech. Oh, okay, so I go to the team in tech. And they say, no, it's not our process. Oh, okay, it must be legal. So I go to legal and they say, no, it's not our process. This process just existed with nobody uh, owning it. And therefore, like it's like it's just like a corporate myth. It just hangs there. And so, um, because we didn't have an owner, I changed it and I made it better. But it's almost like how many companies are layered with processes that are there and never questioned or taken down, but we just do them anyway.
1: I think that's so true because a lot of times too, I actually put a post about this today right. and it was in reference to my child. We had a fugitive that came onto our property in our area, had did some bad things, but long story short, my daughter made like 47 little like eyeball cameras. And I asked her why. And she's like, uh, duh, the bad guys, you know? But the thing is, is what I had explained to her, this is a once in a lifetime (laughs) event, hopefully. Like reality, how many people have fugitive, have massive fugitive searches in your area? It's not going to happen much. But how many times do we create processes based on those one time people doing something that just kills self-management and makes people want to go towards a micro yeah, yeah. management
0: yeah a great so point.
1: talk about that for a minute
0: <laughs> yeah that's a great point again I think you you have hit on um, a, a ritual I guess that I see in mm-hmm. organizations where something happens and instantly the reaction is to kind of engineer a process and then engineer another one another one another one. and before you know it you are thick layered with these processes but but nobody ever says but should we take one away then if we add one and and nobody nobody ever says now we've got 66 processes is there a way to actually say do we still need 66 processes or can we create 33 because the rest of it will take care of itself so i think we um it's almost like playing cards with an ever-growing deck it's like Mm -hmm. i can't even hold all the cards it is almost like the more processes we have and we have to memorize the more we're likely to not adopt them <laughs> so it's almost like can we boil them down to some principles yeah okay cool let's get the principles right all of a sudden we only have 10 of those and they keep us really 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 focused where we need to and then with exceptions we understand the process that we engineer it for that particular thing but we don't then enshrine it and create a big library um there's something about the sort of i suppose compliance side of business that has almost overtaken the creative and thoughtful side of humans Mm -hmm. thinking that we need programming cards for everything and it's like but we we genuinely don't we don't need that um as long as there's a way to work out how to yeah be safe and and be assured then i think uh, that's where your principles come in and so I see companies who have values, and they have then a whole set of things like um, guidance notes and da da da. And I kind of think, how does anybody make sense of any of that? Because the values are so strong, but they're so layered with process. People forget what the values are. And the values are the really strong things that guide the ethics of decision making and so on. So, yeah, I, I totally understand in areas where like oil and gas or something where safety is is first. But what I love about oil and gas, actually, having worked in um, the HR side uh, with clients there, is that you habitualize things like safety rituals so that you memorise them. And then the process is are quite few, actually, because you've almost got this ingrained competence that you don't even need to think about. And self-management, in my experience, creates that too. It creates this mental bank you adopt instantly. And then when there's an an exception, you might bring in an external process just to handle that particular one. So I love the fact that we don't have to pick the book off the shelf all the time. We just know the story.
1: Uh, This makes my heart so happy because the one thing that I talk about is I hate the word safety first. And here's the reason why. What you just said habits. If you have it, what I call it is, it's supposed to be called the celery celery test. I call it the apple test because I hate celery. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, if you think it, you go to a grocery store and you have a soda, you have an apple and you have a bag of chips going down the line, but you instantly think my value is to live a healthy, long life. You instantly know the decision. You don't have to think. So that's yeah. the reason why making safety, literally safety is a part of your body physiologically processed serotonin. I call it the safety cop of the body because nobody yeah. remembers yeah. serotonin. But yeah. if you can listen to your gut where 90% of the time safety cop is at, yeah. that is a way that you can self-manage yourself so that you don't have to layer these bureaucratic processes that stopped that growth that stopped the innovation I remember actually speaking of safety there was a group that I was in a conversation with today and they were talking about how they couldn't even change name titles because they had to go to the board and then they had to go to like three other processes just to change two words and I'm like why but then it made me think of an uh, work that i've done in the past especially specifically in healthcare, i understand and this is just it makes me feel better the only way i can compartmentalize it is that change can lead to death and so very risk adverse companies are mm. more resistant to change mm. unless covid hits and they're kind of thrown at it
0: yeah for sure well i i guess that is a good loop into the whole situation with coronavirus really isn't it because what we've had to do is I think we've had to adopt quite a lot of self-managed ways in, in the response to it, right? So, you know, there have been lots of decisions made very quickly. I mean, I know a company who spent a lot of time creating their business continuity plan. Now, when they knew the government in the UK was about to announce lockdown, did they get that plan out and follow the processes? No. They sat around a table and they said, what feels right? And what do we trust and what do we believe in and what do we need to do to look after our people? And you know what? It was the best thing ever because they didn't kind of defer to some, you know, mythical guidance that would make it right. They just felt their way into it and they, you know, kind of had good conversations and exchanges. And I think, again, it's that... Kind of, it's like a taught instinct, isn't it? It sounds a bit odd, but it is. It's like a grown instinct. You you know how to react in certain situations, and you see it in people who have to handle real sensitive. Um, situations with people perhaps with mental health issues people in traumatic circumstances hostage negotiators they don't get the rule book and the processes out they know because they've embodied the whole thing and what I see in self-managed companies versus not self-managed companies is this embodiment there's not a detachment from me and the process it's like I am the process in the best possible way so it talks exactly to your point of, uh, of, of, of the acting in the nature of the best outcome without deferral to some kind of process. So absolutely right. Mm, that's
1: so good. And I am so appreciative of you, Perry. Mm-hmm. It's such an amazing conversation. So I know that we're close to the end of our time. So okay. with that I do want to ask two final questions. First part mm-hmm. of that final question is people are apologizing for promoting self-management and work. What would you say to them?
0: Well, I, I think they've got to listen to what's coming through, not just from COVID responses, right, but just generally what where we talked about the nature of what people want from their work. OK, I think there is something about we have... Infantil, fantasize the workplace a bit so we've got parents and children and I think it's time to get more adult to adult going on and that requires conversations that requires openness so I would say if you are still apologising for being interested in self-management or you think it's too risky then I think open the conversation with your people and say how much do you want agency and choice and, and variation and influence and I think a whole lot of cool stuff will come out and I think work with that because I think we don't have have to again jump straight into a massive self-management revolution we can evolve into this we can say well let's see where we can create more learning and opportunities and choice and then you just gradually mature the proposition and you just keep talking right so so i think that's how we get over apologizing is we table it we start to name it and understand our propensity towards it we don't force it and we don't dominate it uh, i think we just let it emerge
1: uh. I agree so much. And this is the reason why, what I tell people all the time, you don't want yes people. You want people, you don't have to be like-minded, but you're like-hearted. And that is what I love about you, Perry, is the like-heartedness. Like like you understand humanity and you understand its impact for the next generation. So for the people that are are like-hearted with us, how can they find you or connect with you?
0: Mm. so uh there's only one of me so uh, on youtube and twitter and linkedin perry tims will get you to me uh, my website for the company is pthr.co.uk so it stands for people and transformational hr pthr.co.uk uh, and like i say yeah i'm always open to meet like like-hearted people. I like that phrase. Thank you. Um, Because I think we kind of do need to join forces a little bit and helping people stop apologizing for being interested in self-management and uh, let's get them apologizing for keeping the hierarchical controls in place because we are choking and stifling a whole ton of human spirit.
1: Amen. 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 Thank you so much. And thank you for all that will be listening to this. I hope you have an amazing and blessed day.